0: Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello to all of those joining us. I'm Jesse Bengoa, Goa, and I appreciate you being here with me to talk all things related to the broodmare with some of the very best in the business. And I want to introduce you to the veterinarians joining me here today. And first up, Dr. Scott Bailey, a veterinarian and board of Theriogenologist, North Carolina State University um, in their College of Veterinary Medicine, and also the resident veterinarian at the fabled Claiborne Farms in Paris, Kentucky, where the famous secretariat stood, uh, as well as others of kind of more current uh, relevance, and that's um, the Stallion Warfront and many more. Uh, Dr. Bailey, it's great to have you with us. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: And joining Dr. Bailey and myself here is Dr. Karen Von Dolan of Haggard Equine Medical Institute in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, where she practices alongside a, a truly incredible team. And that includes our friend, Dr. Christina Liu, uh, among many others. And Dr. Von Dolan is also a board of theriogenologist as well um, and came through the residency program at North Carolina State. Uh, so she knows Dr. Bailey very well. Um, and that was after internships in both Australia and right down the road where Platinum Performance was founded at Alamo Pintado Equine Medical Center here in California. So Dr. Von Dolan, welcome. Thanks for joining us as well. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. And, um, you'll notice outside of Dr. Bailey's window, they're getting ready for a big ice storm and, um, tis the season where the California girl, Dr. Von Dolan is, is having to cope with Kentucky weather. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's a treat to have you both here. I really appreciate you being here to talk with us and, you know, I like so many others in the breeding barn. Um, I'm happy to have the opportunity to shine some light on the brood mare. And kind of the unique aspects of keeping her healthy, and also getting a healthy foal on the ground. Um, we've come a long way in terms of our approach to getting mares bred, um, but also nurturing them through a successful pregnancy and seeing the ultimate end result, which is a healthy and thriving foal. So let's jump right in and talk all things broodmare. So Dr. Von Dolan, I'm going to start with you in the hot seat. So. As a general approach, I feel like today, you know, we really realize that practicing whole horse medicine with these mares is so important. You know, they're not simply a a vehicle for delivering the foal. They're not simply a reproductive tract. They're more than that. Um, And they have such long breeding careers now. So tell me about the importance of maintaining optimal health with these brood mares and some of the strategies that you and your team have for doing that. You know, what are you taking into consideration?
2: Yeah, and I think your, your um, word to, to not think of them as just a vehicle is extremely accurate. Um, and uh, absolutely, when we think about a mare um, and repro, we wanna just say, oh, it's the reproductive tract, put semen in, get baby out, it's easy. And it, it's far from that. And uh, from the mare side, um, I think most importantly, her oocytes, are there for her lifetime. And so what we're dealing with when we are breeding the older broodmare, and you you were mentioning their longer careers. So if we she starts getting into her teens and 20s, those oocytes are also teens and 20 years old. She's not making new ones. Um, and so they've been exposed to everything she has throughout her lifetime. And they're going to show the, the effects of that Um, And then I also, uh, from a whole horse perspective, one of the most, um, I'm not sure frustrating is the right word, but just disappointing things is when um, somebody comes to me with a mare at the end of the season and she is not herself in great overall health and they've been trying and trying to get her pregnant and been unsuccessful. And those changes take so much time to undo and to uh, restart her whole health and general overall wellness, um, that's not something that we can change in a matter of days or weeks and sometimes even months. And it takes much longer than that. So to not just start thinking about repro when you, at the moment that you decide that you want a baby from your beloved mare, but to think about it as uh, making sure that she has been in outstanding health her her whole life, um, and that it it will take time. The hormonal system cannot turn on a dime and it needs to have a lot of lead up time to um, get to where it needs to be to to support a pregnancy
0: like so many things in life, you know, it's prevention is the best medicine and it's not something where it's like, oh, she's not getting bread, you know, now we need to address it. It's like, well, you know, if you if you take those steps on a more continuous basis, then the idea would be a higher higher likelihood of success, hopefully, so, and I love how and you I'll, brought it up. Go, go ahead, I'll, Dr.
1: Bailey. I'll, I'll just chime in there and say that one of the reasons that I am at Claiborne and, and one of the things that I really love is their approach to working with the horse as a horse and so every horse goes outside for as long as possible from the day they're born throughout their career as a, as a brood mare um, and they really focus on the, the need of horses to have a routine and to have good solid nutrition and to have exercise regardless whether they're a young brood mare or an old brood mare, um, but really to maintain their well-being as a horse before anything else happens. Before any veterinary intervention or therapy happens, the management of the horse is really critical.
0: You bet I think that's a really important point and you know it's something that I've always admired and so admired about Claiborne. Is, um, is that fact. I mean, you really, you really let horses be horses. And I think it's, it's probably indisputable that that does make a positive impact. You know, I wanna circle back for a moment to talk aged mares. You're both practicing in Kentucky. You're seeing a lot of thoroughbreds, but whether we're talking about thoroughbreds, quarter horses, or, or what have you, you know, mares are being bred well into their senior years, as, as Dr. Von Dolan alluded to. And age can really be one of the greatest limiting factors, correct me if I'm wrong, in terms of achieving a successful pregnancy and therefore a healthy foal. Um, what are your considerations, Dr. Bailey, What are you, that you're making with these aged mares? and really the steps that you're taking to help ensure these mares are in prime physical and breeding condition for the long haul.
1: Right, well, those are really good considerations. And and I happen to be in in a lucky position where the aged mares are still maintained as active horses. I think that the most dangerous thing is for an older mare to be kept in a stall or in a small paddock and kind of babied along and given whatever nutrition she wants. And then for somebody after a few years to think, oh, well, now we want to breed her. Um, Instead, we look at the horse here as a, a, a entity of a pasture or an entity of a herd. And the overall well-being of the herd is important. Uh, in it it really independent of how old the mare is. So good nutrition is the foundation and good exercise is the foundation that I think every horse needs to to function off of. And then um, the second thing is just really uh, careful attention to conformation that's in my case, of course, reproductive conformation, but general conformation and health and nutrition have to be the basis to start with.
0: Hundred percent. I think those are such valid points, and they seem so simple, but it's shocking, kind of, how many times they're they're overlooked with these mayors and um, Dr. Von Dolan. I, I kind of want to point a, a similar but different question your way. Um, you know, when you're talking about these these older mayors, what types of secondary age related issues are you seeing? Um, and how are you supporting these mares? So there's obviously a concern about things like secondary inflammation and the, you know, whether it's the distal limbs or the soft tissue or the abdominal musculature, you know, any of the above, um, and these things that result from carrying a high number of pregnancies. So tell me about that. And I'm sure, um, obesity, you know, overweight mares, metabolic concerns are all rolled up in there as well. Um, and they don't just affect the uterus, right. We're, we're impacting the entire horse.
2: Yes, so I would I would say the two most common things that I battle with in older mares, from a from a overall perspective, would be equine um, Cushing's disease or PPID, pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction, um, and then like you mentioned, um, old musculoskeletal injuries. And with the first, that is fairly straightforward to address. Not that it's easy to address, but at least we have, um, you know, diagnosable ways that we can track progress and medications that have good research to put them on to manage their um, disease process. But then for the musculoskeletal injuries, you know, the mare that had an injury on the track and then was retired to a breeding career, and that injury has just been progressing and causing her chronic but low-grade discomfort, um, I think one of the things that Dr. Liu has really mentored me to always keep in mind is that those inflammatory cells are going to be impacting the reproductive tract no matter where they started from. And so really focusing on identifying that it's an issue and then managing that with appropriate anti-inflammatories so that when you then go to add a local insult of breeding her, that you are also managing um, the additive effects of all that inflammation. So I think those are probably two things that I see quite commonly um, where there are ways that you can, uh, mitigate the effects on the reproductive system.
0: You bet. And I mean, inflammation being kind of that big, bad looming term where it's can be localized in the reproductions, uh, reproductive system, but also the systemic inflammation that these horses tend to be dealing with as well. Um, Dr. Bailey kind of as a follow-up to that question, can we talk about weight in particular for a moment, you know, Dr. Von Dolan alluded to some of these metabolic concerns that these horses are dealing with, but let's talk about excess weight in these mares because, you know, brood mares uh, in several different breeds tend to be famous for being a little bit, a little bit thicker sometimes. And a lot of people have, have brushed that aside as not being as important as we now know that it is. And it seems like excess weight, you know, it seems to be changing things in these mares, whether it's the lipids in their oocytes and their follicular parameters as well. Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What, what are we dealing with in terms of that excess weight?
1: For sure, excess weight is a problem. Um, I, I guess I don't think of it so much as a problem of the older mare because in our population, the older mare is above 20. I think of it more as a problem of say, the, the middle-aged or older maiden mare that maybe we see more in the sport horse field. Um, an older maiden mare that is slightly overweight or even moderately overweight um, is faced with an awful lot of inflammatory issues that a fit mare isn't. And um, so uh, a lot of times that's the first thing that has to be addressed. And kind of like Dr. Von Dolan mentioned, when you look at the horse for the first time, it's important not just to look at what our ovaries are doing and our uterus is doing, but get a sense for. What degree of lameness she has? Uh, Is she overweight? What is her current diet versus what the ideal diet would be? And what is the exercise that she gets? I think it is advisable for most broodmares to stay under saddle. And again, this is more sort of leaning on the sport horse side. It, It seems like that it's fairly common to think, well, I've been riding her and she's been successful and now I'm going to retire her, and I'll keep her in the barn and I'll breed her, uh, but I won't ride her on a regular basis. And, and that has oftentimes the unfortunate consequence that those mares both get more lax because they lose muscle tone and also gain weight where it really isn't, isn't necessary. And it, you mentioned lipids and oocytes, it, that certainly is an issue, but purely from an inflammatory standpoint in the uterus, it also predisposes them for uh, underlying endometritis that we can really struggle to deal with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about the genetic component of overweight mares, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it being seen that some of these metabolic conditions and mares that are, that are overweight on the heavy side can potentially, um, have changes happening down the line with their offspring and beyond what's to be learned here?
1: I think that that can get overplayed. Certainly, certainly diseases like, say, Cushing's or PPID um, can have a genetic component. But the fact is, there are so many things that go into how a a mare or a person gains weight um, that simply just saying, oh, well, her mother was overweight and therefore she's bound to be overweight is an oversimplification that actually gets us into trouble more often than not. We know from studies in humans that the diet of the mare during pregnancy will, or a woman during pregnancy, will affect the body fat component of the adult offspring. And so, that's not a genetic thing, that's an environmental thing that starts before birth and mm-hmm. then c- carries on through the neonatal period and through young adulthood. And so I, I, I've had several clients that have commented about the genetic component of weight, unless it's associated with a disease condition, I really think that environment has such a huge impact that we have to take responsibility for the environment and work with the environment that we have.
0: I think it makes perfect sense. You're not cursed by your genetics necessarily. Environment has a lot to do with it. So, you know, I want to zero in on something that you said, and that is kind of the translational medicine aspect of this realm, you know, Um, we've learned so much. It seems like, you know, as, as veterinarians, like you, theriogenologists from their counterparts on the human side and vice versa. Um, and it seems like there's been a pretty open highway of information going back and forth and we've learned quite a bit. Can you tell me a little bit about how, uh, you know, what we learn in the reproduction realm within the horse can translate back and forth between human infertility and, and back again?
1: Sure. I was hoping Dr. Bundell would be
2: <laughs> Jesse, sorry. I thought you were still talking to him only. I was like, yeah, I'm enthralled as well. Keep it going. <laughs> yeah, we, uh,
0: no pressure. Dr. Bailey, we're expecting brilliance.
2: <laughs>
0: well,
1: I, I always say that that's why we call it practice because right. it, it's veterinary medicine is, is never a time when you stop learning. And, and I'll be quite honest. Some of the things that I know about about the effects on on humans, I learned from Dr. Van Dolan when we were preparing lectures, and she would come up with the most random facts about well, such and such a scientist in 1924 found X, Y, and Z, and that started the whole process that we're now, you know, in the process of. But um, we we certainly do look to the human literature, and and I guess I would hope that that. MDs look to the veterinary literature as well in a lot of ways.
2: Um,
1: There's no way that the differences between species are so great that uh, advances in knowledge in one species don't cross to to advances in knowledge to the other. And so when we look and and, uh, seek out information, I think doing so in a comparative nature, whether it's on the human side or in dogs or or in food animal, we definitely learn um, from all of them, even though there are minor differences in the anatomy of the uterus or the ovaries.
2: And I was going to echo one of the things that Dr. Bailey has always um, really emphasized to me from the very beginning of my Uh, training program that um, reproduction is a comparative discipline. And so, being able to uh, extrapolate information from one species to another only enhances it the experience for both, both of those species. And in terms of the research that's going on, certainly we have some outstanding reproductive research, but comparatively, um, I think it's a bit of an under-explored under region, but I might be biased. Um, and so I think only through drawing from other species and trying to um, apply those to the species you're currently working with, uh, can we push things forward? So I think absolutely it's a translational discipline and there are a lot of similarities as Dr. Bailey said, Um, even if the anatomy is different or the physiology is different, there's a lot that can be learned from one to the other.
0: Amen. I think that's a great way to put it. And I remember at Platinum Summit in 2019, Dr. Elaine Carnevale and Dr. Adam Chico got up with Dr. Rebecca Kreischer, who is on the human side of it. And it was so interesting to hear them talk about what crosses over. I mean, they were digging deep and going into mitochondria and all kinds of different aspects of it. And um, it's it's really amazing um, to think how the horse can impact the person and back again. And this is a perfect area as to how that could happen. So Um, you know, I want to, uh, Dr. Vondola, and I'm going to point this one at you. I want to talk about, you know, a lay of the land in general, you know, we've come a long way in, in our understanding and our approach to breeding over the last few decades. Um, and obviously it's a different scenario when we're talking about live cover thoroughbreds versus embryo transfer and ICSI on say the quarter horse front. Um, but there's been a lot of notable advancements regardless of the breed, regardless of the approach. But one that stands out is this lower number of cycles and even lower number of oocytes that it takes to get a mare bred. Um, And Dr. Bailey, you've explored this area as well, obviously. So walk us through um, what what we've seen in terms of advancements here, if you would.
2: Yeah, so I think one of the um, industry trends that I've seen happen in the non-thoroughbred world is, trying to be efficient with frozen semen. Yeah. And so when you have extremely limited amounts of frozen semen, whether that is due to um, industry or marketing availability, a stallion from Europe, say that's in very high demand and it's being um, divided, up, a single dose is being divided up between multiple persons who are interested in that stallion and you end up with one single straw of semen. Um, or if the stallion is deceased and there is a finite amount of semen left and then trying to, uh, you know, safeguard those genetics. And if you have one single straw of semen, are you going to roll the dice with that on a frozen semen breeding cycle, um, and hope that you are lucky and end up with a pregnancy and then not just a pregnancy, but a foal on the ground, because, you know, it doesn't count unless it makes it to term, or are you going to take that single straw of semen and efficiently utilize it in something like ICSI? Um, And so I think a lot of people are moving toward the latter option and focusing on being extremely, um, you know, just salvaging those last precious, Genes, And as, as the ICSI technology has increased and our knowledge about oocytes has increased, um, then we've had greater efficiency going from, you know, working a few decades ago to where we are today. And so that becomes a much more manageable option. Um, and, and I think that's only going to increase uh, as, as this becomes more widespread.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that from the outside looking in, it seems like um, really successful breeding operations have, have focused on quality more than more than they ever have in the past. And, you know, coming from Claiborne farm, obviously Dr. Bailey, that's something when I think Claiborne farm, I think quality, you know, so can you tell me a little bit about how you've seen these evolutions happen um, and maybe through the the lens of the work that you do at Claiborne?
1: Sure. Um, So Claiborne has been proud, I think, probably since its inception of their mare lines. They have had some really phenomenal stallions, uh, but they've done that uh, in large part by carefully selecting the mares that they keep on the farm. And so that's where quality sort of starts. Uh, Of course, that sometimes means that You have a a mare and her two daughters and (laughs) two granddaughters all on the same farm, Um, but it does definitely impact the pressure to um, utilize those animals wisely. And so I think, you know, identifying the interventions that we can do, figuring out how to achieve a healthy pregnancy with the minimum number of interventions is almost a puzzle that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. You know, it it, it a lot of times um, is seductive to say, "Well, there are all these drugs, and we'll just we'll try all of them on this mare." Uh, and sometimes I'm seduced to try that, but I find that uh, the more uh, the more I limit the number of, number of interventions and work with the mayor, the more likely I am to get a pregnancy and one cycle or 1.5 cycles or something like that versus when I'm really trying to do a lot of different things to the mayor instead of working with her, I uh, as often as not make a mistake that actually causes harm um, rather than really achieving what I've got. Now, we're faced with a different scenario in the thoroughbred world than Dr. Van Dolan is. She has tools that I just don't have access to. Um, and I think that the really exciting and new things that are happening are probably not in the very tradition bound thoroughbred world. We, we, are, uh, we are in a unique position in thoroughbreds to really work with the animal as opposed to being able to, say, salvage very valuable genetics that Dr. Von Dolan can through ICSI and oocyte aspirations and similar things.
0: Excellent. Well, I love your sentiment of working with the mare versus, you know, throwing things at the mare. I feel like that's a good sentiment for women in general, work, work, with, work with her instead of telling her what to do. <laughs> might be, it might be a good recipe for success, no matter what. Um, So let's switch over real quick, kind of switch over, you know, along the same lines, but let's talk about problem mirrors specifically. Um, When you're presented with a tough case, Dr. Von Dolan, I'll, I'll ask you this first. What are you looking at in terms of your exam and kind of the head to hoof approach of troubleshooting and diagnostics?
2: Yeah. um, So I, uh, I have found myself, um, you know, I think you can learn a lot just by looking at the back end of the mare. Like, of course we are looking at the whole horse. That's, that's feet and legs, head, eyes, etc. cetera. That's very important. But when a mare is backed out at the stall for me to examine for the first time, I always do the same once over of her haunches. And I think you can get a pretty, you can see some red flags of her body condition by that. And if you, when you look at them all the same way, things start to jump out. So does she have some little fat pads on either side of her tail? Does she have a really high hip um, that slopes downward? I'm like, ooh, is she pulling your in sneakily? And uh, her hair coat um, there, is it coarse? Is it wiry? Is it thick? Is it dull? Is it shiny? Um, and then I, um, also, uh, always look straight down the legs, um, uh, when I'm palpating her and, uh, you can pick up uh, subtle musculoskeletal things, you know, and I'll say, oh gosh, does she have some hawk effusion? And maybe they'll say, oh yeah, actually she had, you know, that's why she was retired. And she's always had that. And, and, um, I just, because of the repetitive nature of just doing repro and always seeing the same things presented in a similar fashion, um, I have found myself not intentionally, but just found myself always, always doing that once over and looking at them. And then that can often start a conversation with the client that builds into more of her history. Um, and so just by looking at the mare and chatting to the client about the history, I already have a few differentials coming up in my head. You know, if they're describing that she's had a rough fulling in the past, I'm thinking about, okay, does she have some trauma to her reproductive tract? That is why she's being presented as a problem mayor. Or has she never gotten in full? And I really, and I need to be thinking about a chromosomal abnormality or a um, really profound whole horse problem or a congenital abnormality anatomically of her reproductive tract. Um, And then once I've done those, then I just critically (coughs) look at her back end um, head on and Dr. Bailey alluded to reproductive confirmation and um, cannot be overstated. You know, you can tell a lot by uh, her back end what the mare is going to look like uh, in terms of her reproductive efficiency. So um, is, does she have a sunken perineum? Does she have a really elevated vulva? Um, does she have really flaccid vulvar lips that don't close very well? Um, does she have a caslixin? Um, does she not? Um, and then looking between her hind legs, has she accumulated any uh, scurfy urine pooling funk? Or um, does she dribble a lot of fecal material down her legs? And all of those things are before I have, Put my hand in the mirror, and you already can start forming a, a possible story for what might be going on. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, a critical palpation before a scan, and then a scan. And um, one thing that I have um, been trained to do really critically by Christina Liu is to really scan the vagina and the bladder really closely. And um, I, uh, that has really changed how I've done every exam. So instead of just, oh yeah, I see the cervix and I'm now I'm coming out and I'm already moving on to the next thing. I am fanning back and forth over the whole vagina. And I've been surprised at the number of really subtle things that you can pick up if you look for them. So a tiny amount of air, a tiny amount of fluid. And those are all things that then can lead you, lead you to um, follow up more closely on one of those storylines that you've already started to think about. Um, so uh, I, I, I do very similar things for each mare so that I can methodically put them together, mare to mare and, and learn from each one. Um, kind of like doing a, a physical exam, like how we learn from day one of vet school to always do it in the same order so you don't miss doing something. Um, and so I, I, now that I do a lot of repro primarily, I find myself kind of doing a, a repro physical exam and doing very similar things to every mare so that differences between them start to stand out.
0: I feel like that's the start of good medicine, you know, and yeah. I, I love the root cause approach. Um, I, I love that. So what about you, Dr. Bailey, anything to add there?
1: Well, I think I think Dr. Von Dolan described the exam really, really well. Uh, some veterinarians really like to use a, a speculum as well, in addition to palpation and ultrasound. And um, I, I would say it's, maybe not Dr. Von Dolan's first thing to do probably because it wasn't my first thing to do. Um, but there isn't anything wrong with reaching for a speculum and looking at the external cervix and the vagina through that as well. Sometimes, you know, people have a more visual approach one way or the other, or, or a more tactile approach one way or the other. I, I um, would say that in my experience, I, I've, spent a lot of time thinking about therapeutics in the last weeks as I've prepared some lectures. And um, I happened to be on the farm that Dr. Kaslick's developed his, his uh, first procedures on. Um, and I was taught as a student and then as a intern and, and resident that the Kaslick's remains the single most effective thing at um, improving mayor's pregnancy. And I always kind of took that to heart and and just accepted it as dogma. And in the last couple of months, I've been comparing um, antibiotic efficacy to uh, the efficacy of other therapeutics that are meant to improve fertility. And it's really interesting that the current data from Europe actually confirmed what I had learned and as sort of dogma back in the day that um, fixing any physical abnormality through either uh, you know, a urethral extension or a Caslix or a perineal repair um, is more important than any other therapeutic that, that we can do. And a lot of times I think we want to overlook those because it's a lot more difficult to do a, a urethral extension than simply to add some antibiotics into the uterus. But in the long run, the external exam, the CASLICS procedure, and then repairing any physical abnormalities that have resulted either from obesity or being underweight or, or from a previous pregnancy is really has to be the first thing that we do for those problem mares.
0: So interesting. Thank you for that, both of you. Um, you know, obviously our wheelhouse at Platinum is recognizing some of these issues affecting brood mares and then working with veterinarians like both of you to see how we can support outcomes with nutrition. That's that's the the realm in which we live. Um, but we know that taking a whole horse approach is key, but kind of zeroing in further. Can you talk to me a little bit about the gut for instance? I mean, especially as we're mentioning antibiotics and things like that, can you talk to me about the importance of the gut or the gut microbiome specifically in reproduction and what we're learning about its impact and how using things like omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants, pre and probiotics, um, things like that can make a real
2: difference. Yeah, well, I mean, everything starts in the gut. It's the... It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an enormous part of the equine anatomy. And so to think that it doesn't have far-reaching effects on the whole body, reproduction included, would, would um, you know, doesn't, doesn't stand to reason. So um, I am a huge fan of probiotics um, for both horses, humans, dogs. Uh, I think that they are of huge benefit. Um, and so if we're supporting that healthy, Uh, bacterial environment, then it doesn't leave space for pathogens. If we have filled up all the space in the body with good bugs, then there's no room for pathogens. And so I think one of the biggest issues we run into is when we don't fully fill up those seats, uh, and then it, it leaves the door open for, um, for a dysbiosis or for a pathogen to take over. And then that's where we run into problems and, and absolutely repro is on the, on the, uh, uh, collateral list of, 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 a, of an unhealthy microbiome.
0: I think that's a good way to put it, fill it up with the good bugs, no room for the bad guys. Yeah. How about you? Doctor? Yeah.
2: I, I
1: agree that it's vitally important. I, I don't know that we really understand how important it is yet. So, um, it, it goes both ways. On the one hand, we would love to fill up the system with the, the good bacteria that, that we think should be there. Um, And on the other hand, we have to recognize when our therapeutics uh, may be doing harm to those bacteria. And I was listening to a lecture this morning by a a faculty member at Utrecht, and he took uh, 10 research horses and brought them into the hospital and measured just their fecal microbiome and the, the resistome, meaning the resistance genes to antimicrobials in that population of horses, and for the first two weeks there was no change. So they were now in a hospital setting, but uh, they had no more resistance genes than they had before. And then he gave the mares trimethoprim-sulfur, an antibiotic, for five days, and within forty-eight hours, the resistance genes in the in the feces increased dramatically, both for the antibiotic that was administered and also for other antibiotics.
0: Wow. And, wow. and what
1: he found was that that effect was maintained for at least six months after the antibiotics were stopped.
2: Oh, my That's God. That's
0: horrifying. I mean, imagine <laughs> imagine people and what's
2: going yeah. on. Yeah.
1: Well, so so the next question that came up in that lecture was, well, I wonder what the situation is with the bacteria in the uterus. And we were, Dr. Wundelen may be too young for it, but I certainly was taught that the uterus is sterile. And we know that that's not true. The uterus has its own. <clears throat> um, and we, But we don't yet really know what the biome of the uterus is. And so we're unfortunately not really even in a position to identify what bacteria we would like to add or what the negative effects of our therapeutics might be. But it is absolutely, I think, indisputable that um, there is a natural flora to the uterus and to the caudal vagina, and that disrupting that is as detrimental as we know that disrupting the flora of the penis in the stallion is, or or any other natural flora that, that exists in a body system.
0: You bet. I mean, it seems like we're, we're recognizing we're in infancy, you know, we've come so far with recognizing the impact of the microbiome, but we also, we don't know what we don't know yet about it. And that all of these different systems, the body is an interconnected, you know, system uh, with everything being attached and everything being connected so much more than we've ever given it credit for. And it seems like we're just scratching the surface there, but um, there's a lot of impact yet to be made, hopefully with, with greater understanding of it. Um, and you know, kind of what I love about the nutritional aspect with brood mares is that you have the opportunity to not only impact the mayor, which is so important, um, but also potentially the foal. So can you tell me about how the right nutrition can be pivotal, pivotal, pivotal while a foal is in utero? I mean, there's obvious things like. Providing a nutrient dense diet and how important that is, but there's also specifics like vitamin E and minerals and so on with mares that consistently throw OCD babies. And, um, you know, what is the importance and how can it impact the full?
1: We use the Platinum GI product for maiden mares and barren mares as a routine. And so that has been uh, since before I came, just a, a routine thing. Uh, And I would say that the the staff comments regularly how much better those mares look than another population of mares that is not getting platinum GI. We also have started looking at specific micronutrients or nutrients like linoleic acid in terms of uh, fertility for mares. There's quite a bit of work in in stallions on that. Um, And uh, we... Are, are again borrowing from human the human nutritional field to suggest that that may have an impact on some of our mares as well.
2: How about you, Dr. Von Dolan? Thank you for that, Dr. Bailey. Yeah, I mean, when you were first phrasing your question, I immediately started thinking about the placenta. And in the mare, um, you know, we have our diffuse placentation. And so um, then the equine placenta, in comparison to other species, um, is always kind of on the brink of insufficiency. And that's why at parturition it's so time critical in horses as compared to other species, um, because the mare is basically trying... Putting everything she can into that full through that placenta, and it needs all the surface area that it can get. Um, and so, you need that mare to be at peak health in order to most efficiently transport everything that fetus needs through the placenta. Um, because if, if she's not working at full capacity, then you're going to start to see um, clinical insufficiencies. Down the road, and, and in that developing fetus. And mares have a, a fairly long gestation period. And so they're exposed to almost a full year of changing nutrition. Then, you know, we can manipulate that a lot uh, in mares in our intensively managed situations. But if you think about it, um, in, you know, know, a a wild sense um, that that mare would have to cope with the seasonality, the changes of nutrition and be trying to turn that over and put that into her developing pregnancy. So I absolutely want my pregnant mares to be at uh, peak health uh, overall.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that explanation. You know, I remember um, Dr. Charlie Scoggin, your predecessor at Claiborne, Dr. Bailey, Uh, he once told me that, you know, he goes, "I, I might be a theriogenologist, but I'm a veterinarian first. And that's really important to me. And he said, we're breeding the horse. We're not just breeding the reproductive track. And, you know, we've kind of alluded to that throughout our conversation, but what, you know, sort of in summary, what does that sentiment mean to you? And in the context of the mare and why, you know, why is the mare so important and so worthy of this attention from both a breeding capacity and also, you know, removed from her job, you know, just, just as a horse? Why is that so important? We'll start with Dr. Von Dolan.
2: Oh, sure. Um, I mean, why the horse? Uh, I mean, I, I just, when you drive through central Kentucky in the spring, I think that's one of my favorite things about the breeding season. It's long, it's Miserable, but when spring changes and you're going out to do a post green lavage at seven o'clock at night in April and late April, and so the sun is still out and you're driving to that farm way out in Paris, not Claiborne, but way out in Paris. And you look out in the fields and the um, older mares and foals are being turned out overnight because the weather is lovely. And you have the lovely twilight of the start of the sunset. And um, there, there's, I usually don't have my tech with me because it's after hours. I don't want them to have to stay late. So I'll just be going out to La Mare. And that's that's the most beautiful time in Kentucky for me. And that's when I look at that and I say, okay, yeah, this is all worth it. All those early mornings and all those negative prague checks that was worth it for this moment. Um, And so uh, why the horse? Because because they're beautiful, because they're majestic because there's nothing else like them. And then from maybe to get more to your question, um, you know, you're a veterinarian first and then you're a reproduction veterinarian. Um, uh, You can't, you can't Make a pregnancy without that whole body behind you to support that. Um, you need strong feet and legs. You need healthy, um, fit muscles. You of course need a healthy reproductive tract. Um, and and that mare, you know, making a making a foal is a really big job. It takes a lot out of a mare. And if she herself is is a uh, not um, not at her peak potential, then she's not going to do a good job of, of making, making that huge undertaking. Yeah. I love that. You
0: know, in, um, all my years working with veterinarians, you all have an immense scientific mind, um, and you work incredibly hard long hours, but I feel like it always comes back to the love of the horse. And I think that's a really special thing about this profession is that, it's tough, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing, but at the end of the day, you get to make a real impact for the sake of the horse, you know, this, this amazing creature that gives us all so much joy in a lot of different ways. So I love that part of it. And, you know, Dr. Bailey, I'm going to turn the last question to you. Um, you know, you've, you've been on a lot of fronts, you know, had your hands on horses and continue to on the research front. Um, you know, you've given a lot to veterinary medicine, also in academia, you know, training up the next generation. So you've given a lot of yourself to this profession. What has it given you?
1: Um, I don't know, it's given me life really. So I, I, I wanted to be a veterinarian since the time I could speak. I didn't know that I would go to academia and I initially didn't know that I wanted to work with horses, although horses, when I was young, were a constant companion. Uh, I wasn't always in a position to have my own, but I can't remember a time when I couldn't go to a barn and and lay down in a horse's stall when I'd had a rough day at school. And I think everyone has rough days. So horses have been my savior in a lot of ways. Um, and I... Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine not trying to give that back to the horse to some degree. I think reproduction as being a reproductive veterinarian is one way, but in the end, it's easy to fall into the um, thought process of, well, I, I'm producing a foal so that it can sell at Keeneland for X amount of dollars. And I don't think that that really can be ultimately what drives any of us. The horse as, as an entity, not even as an individual animal, but the horse as a, a fellow creature um, of nature, has to in some some way, I think, impact all of us. And... I don't know that, that every person is called to the same degree. Not everyone wants to be a veterinarian and not everyone wants to work with horses. But I think globally we recognize how regal a horse is. And uh, even if if we don't recognize it, there's something calming that horses bring to us, either from a distance. My wife would be say that she loves to see the horses in the field, but she doesn't necessarily want to get close to them. <laughs> I love to see the horses in the field and I can't wait to have my hands just touching their shoulder or underneath their mane. And so I, all of us also have long days sometimes, and, uh, but, but the chance to wrap your arms around a horse's neck is really special. And so that's one of the things that they give back to me. I also am, am very curious by nature and I feel like that science has given my curiosity an outlet and uh, kept it from going places that maybe wouldn't have been productive. So <laughs> those two things together.
0: I love that. I think that's a very genuine answer. And I think that any horse person or anybody who's ever been around or dreamed of horses, you can say, oh, I just want to put my arms around them. And I think we all instantly can picture, can go there. We can picture exactly what that feels like. And they have a special um, a special way to do that. But I, uh, I'll tell you what, I, as, as that kind of rounds us out on our discussion of, of the broodmare, um, I have been so fortunate to be joined by, um, by you, you two incredibly talented and dedicated veterinarians and theriogenologists. And you know, I think I can speak for everyone at Platinum and myself especially that we, we have a high amount of respect for what you do um, in keeping the horse healthy and, and stewarding the next generation of, of the horses that we love and all, all these different disciplines. Um, and that's really the best part about having these discussions selfishly is that I get the chance to talk to people like you who are really making a measurable difference, you know, in the, in the health of the horse. So thank you to Dr. Scott Bailey and Dr. Karen Von Dolan. I appreciate you both being here and on behalf of all of us at Platinum Performance, I'm Jesse Bengoa, and I hope to have you back for our next discussion, but until then take care.